2000, the parent of a child who was using a piece of educational software called Reader Rabbit was alerted by their firewall, another piece of software that notes happenings in one's computer, especially when those happenings involve the computer making connections to the internet. They were alerted that this Reader Rabbit game was calling home, was making a surreptitious internet connection behind the scenes, and sending data back to its parent company, Mattel. Alarmingly, he was informed of this connection by the firewall later, after his kid was asleep, when he was doing work on the same computer. The Reader Rabbit software had apparently logged data about its use and was now, while he was connected to the internet, sending that data elsewhere, heavily encrypted, so he had no way of knowing what sorts of data it was transmitting, about what, and to whom. When asked about this phone home behavior, a Mattel spokesperson said that nothing nefarious was happening. The company had software called Broadcast, enabled in something like 100 CD-ROM-based products they sold, installed automatically with the rest of the program, and it was included primarily as a means of offering discounts on other products to folks who had already bought one of Mattel's software offerings, or in some cases, to offer users a freebie, like a screensaver, after the software confirmed they had installed the original product. Not mentioned in Mattel's press release about the issue, though, is the fact that many companies, including this kind of marketing and advertising-related software with their products, also collect a bundle of other data from their users' computers, including very personal bits of private data that could, in the wrong hands, lead to some serious security concerns. In an article about this Mattel-centric story, published back in June of 2000 in the U.S. News and World Report, it was also reported that a company called SurfMonkey, which was a free content-filtering program, the kind often used by parents and schools to keep their kids from accessing sites that wouldn't be appropriate for younger web surfers, was collecting data about user behavior and transmitting that data back to their headquarters. Among other data points, this company was collecting its user's IP address, which could be used to pinpoint that user's physical location, which in this case meant the physical location of a child. When asked about this data-collecting behavior, the company said it would stop sending personal data to its company servers in this way shortly. But such comments, including this one, are often carefully worded so they suggest that the company will cease collecting data altogether. But what they actually mean is they will, at least temporarily, cease collecting very specific types of data, not all data. Or they will temporarily cease doing so until they can come up with another way of doing it that won't get them in trouble. These days, this often means outsourcing data collection and parsing responsibilities, so the company in question no longer has to deal with this type of problem themselves, and can claim ignorance and innocence if anything similar pops up in the future. The term spyware 
showed up in this 2000-era article, though it wasn't the first published use of the term, which was reportedly originally dropped in a Usenet group in 1995. But it was a relatively new use of the term, in that it was being applied to software purpose-built to quietly install itself on a user's device to collect data about that user and, in some cases, their behaviors or other demographically relevant information, and to then pack that information up and send it elsewhere, often without the user's knowledge. This utility eventually became a full-fledged business model as the web became more popular, with some browsers allowing the installation of search bars and other customizations, which would, by default, and as a means of funding themselves, capture essentially everything that user did on the internet and send that info with varying degrees of specificity and anonymization back to the software makers, who could then sell that data packaged up appropriately to entities that were keen to market things to different demographics. This same model, only really distinct in how the data is collected and the scale that it's attained, was eventually revamped in the form of cookie tracking and invisible pixels on websites and in emails that keep tabs on what people do, where and when, and for how long. And such tracking and data collecting and bundling and selling is what funds a shockingly large portion of the modern internet. What I'd like to talk about today is another type of spyware based on the same general principles, but with a very different business model and used for very different purposes. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Verge, and it's entitled Spyware Scandal Rocks Polish Government. Let's start with some context. NSO Group Technologies is an Israeli company founded by a trio of ex-Israeli military intelligence officers who were with a facet of the agency called Unit 8200, which specializes in collecting what's called SIGINT, or signal intelligence. So basically, they focused on intercepting communication signals of various kinds, including those between individuals, but often with a focus on electronic communication channels more broadly. There's also an element of code decryption in this field, so folks working in SIGINT specialize in intercepting signals and then decrypting them, allowing them to figure out what other people and groups are saying across channels they may have good reason to think are private. Israel is renowned for investing in this sort of intelligence. So Unit 8200 and similar adjacent groups within their intelligence services have become incubators of a sort for well-trained people who then go on to found companies within relevant fields and for existing companies to scoop up and employ people with this kind of training. NSO Group, then, having been founded by three such people, had a decent reputation from the get-go in terms of SIGINT capability 
They secured monetary investment without too much trouble, and a few years after being founded in 2010, they locked in a $20 million contract with the Mexican government, followed by a sale of in-house surveillance technology to the Panamanian government in 2015. By that point, though, NSO had been bought by an American private equity firm for $130 million and had about 500 employees, 10 times what they had the previous year, and they'd merged in 2014 with a surveillance company called Circles, which came with an existing Rolodex of customers based in 25 countries, further bolstering NSO's client list. That private equity firm sold a majority stake in the company back to two of the three original co-founders of NSO in early 2019. The third co-founder had left the company about a month after it was founded, so they retain control of NSO with European private investor backing as of the very beginning of 2022. Pegasus, in this context, is spyware that was developed by NSO Group and which is licensed to foreign governments and sometimes other entities by the Israeli government. And it has been classified as a weapon, which means its export must be approved by Israeli leaders. We're still learning more details about the creation and application of Pegasus as of the day I'm recording this, but the macro view use case of Pegasus is to spy on individuals and networks of individuals through their devices. It can be installed on many versions of Apple's iOS operating system and some Android devices as well. And to think of it as one application that can be installed on one device or makes use of one software flaw isn't quite right, as it's actually more like a portfolio of exploits and weapons that can take stock of what the targeted person has and then choose from its arsenal the proper vulnerability or exploit to grant the user, the person doing the spying, a variety of capabilities on that person's smartphone or other similar device. In practice, this often but not always means getting the targeted person to click a link or open a message in iMessage or getting them to open a song or a photo in the relevant app. Once opened or clicked, or in some cases merely viewing the media or chat, the proper backdoor software, which can bring with it a seedling version of the Pegasus app, is auto-installed, and that allows the person or entity using Pegasus to run arbitrary code, which means basically being able to do just about anything they want within that device. They can siphon the user's contact information, read all their messages, download all their media, their photos, their videos, their app data, view their browsing history, change their settings, log into their bank accounts, get all their passwords, read and download and send emails from them, or delete archived emails, use their social media accounts, and in some cases even silently, without any external indication, activate their microphones and or cameras. Pegasus allows, in essence, some degree of control over that device, and in some cases near-absolute control. 
all of which allows an, as far as we know at least, unparalleled level of remote monitoring and surveillance of a person and anyone they meet or any place they go, which as you can imagine is a potent weapon in the hands of certain entities like law enforcement. An early version of Pegasus was used by the Mexican government as part of their larger operation to capture Joaquin Guzman, better known to most of us as El Chapo, the cartel leader who was eventually captured and imprisoned with the help of a Pegasus hack of a bunch of BlackBerry phones, which allowed law enforcement to crack the famously well-encrypted BBM text message service used on such devices which were favored by cartel members because of that perceived security and privacy. El Chapo escaped from prison, the second time he'd done so, in mid-2015. But the Pegasus software that had been running on the, he thought, secret mobile phones he'd been using while in prison as part of an attempt to maintain control over his cartel and to set up a movie deal, that software continued to monitor communications between the lawyers and entertainment world personalities that he had contacted while in prison. And those connections, including texts between him and an actress that he'd been courting to work on a film about his life, allowed Mexican law enforcement to keep tabs on his actions and whereabouts, eventually leading to his recapture in early 2016 which in turn led to his extradition to the U.S. and life imprisonment. As recently as 2019, you could read glowing pieces about this and similar Pegasus-powered pursuits, demonstrating the potency of this kind of tool in the hands of agencies and government-backed organizations attempting to apprehend cartel bosses, mafiosos, and terrorists worldwide. And in fact, that's always been the purported purpose of this program. Governments pay NSO Group after the sale has been approved by the Israeli government, and NSO Group provides the customer with this sort of tracking capability over more or less anyone they want to target, which in some cases does in fact end up being various sorts of hard-to-catch criminals and terrorists. But in other cases, many other cases, as it turns out, this tool and similar tools in NSO Group's arsenal ended up being aimed at innocent people, ranging from ex-spouses to human rights workers to opposition political candidates. That piece from The Verge focuses on one specific recent case of Pegasus being used against members of political opposition groups in Poland. Members of Polish opposition parties have produced evidence that their phones were infected with Pegasus, some as early as 2019, in the six months leading up to an election, one of which resulted in damaging text messages from an opposition candidate's phone being published. But it's also been discovered that a lawyer representing top opposition figures had his phone hacked around the same time, and more recently, in 2021, a prosecutor that challenged the current populist right-wing Polish government's attempts, which were ultimately successful, to purge the country's judiciary of anyone who might be capable of countering the government's at times unpopular actions, had her phone hacked with Pegasus. 
The Polish government has denied using Pegasus for any purpose. They've said they are not customers of NSO Group and the spyware research group operating out of the University of Toronto, Citizen Lab, which discovered these specific device compromises, has said they can't tell who initiated the attacks, only that they occurred. This is happening in the wake of several years' worth of Pegasus-related revelations, beginning in August of 2016, when a human rights defender named Ahmed Mansour was sent a text message that promised information about human rights violations if he clicked on an included link. He sent that message to Citizen Lab, which discovered that, had he clicked it, his phone would have been automatically and secretly jailbroken. Spyware would have been installed, and the group behind that spyware, and presumably the text message, was NSO Group. An IT security outfit called Lookout collaborated with Citizen Lab on this effort, and they shared information about their discovery in a December 2016 blog post, in which they also say the code they assessed contained evidence that this hack worked as far back as iOS 7 an older version of the iPhone operating system that was released in 2013. The New York Times and the Times of Israel newspapers followed up with reports that the United Arab Emirates was using this type of spyware as early as 2013, and other journalistic entities discovered that the former president of Panama was using it from 2012 until 2014. Many people outside the world of cybersecurity first became aware of this software when it was reported in the Washington Post that NSO Group was providing Pegasus to Saudi Arabia and that they used Pegasus to spy on Saudi human rights activist and Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was ultimately murdered and dismembered at the order of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, according to the available evidence and the conclusions of an investigation by the CIA. The Saudi government reportedly also used Pegasus to spy on other Saudi human rights activists and journalists who have been critical of the regime. The scope and scale of the Pegasus program really began to unspool in 2020, though, when a list of more than 50,000 phone numbers that were believed to belong to people of interest, designated as such by NSO Group clients, was leaked to Amnesty International and a France-based nonprofit that publishes the work of journalists who are being threatened or who have been imprisoned for their work, called Forbidden Stories. These organizations then passed the list along to 17 media entities in nearly as many countries, which worked through the list, confirmed its legitimacy, and ultimately published a collection of stories on the subject under the moniker the Pegasus Project. Citizen Lab also played a role in this project, independently peer-reviewing the work to make sure it was legitimate in terms of the forensic methods used and verification ultimately achieved. The findings of this project were sobering. While NSO Group still maintains they only sell this service to governments for use against criminals or terrorists, in reality, Pegasus is widely used against journalists, lawyers, politicians, human rights activists, and pretty much anyone else people in the position to purchase the service might want to spy on and or mess with in some way. Many organizations 
have since claimed that Pegasus has become part of a larger toolkit of software and strategies used to intimidate anyone who might stand up to authoritarian regimes or abusive organizations or leaders, as blackmail material can be easily gathered via such hacks. And in some cases, the information can be used to track people who go into hiding or on the run, fearful for their own or their family's safety, which in turn can lead to their capture, imprisonment, or assassination by these Pegasus customers, the latter of which seems to have been the case for Khashoggi and his murder. Known targets of this software at the moment, those that have been confirmed by the folks working on this project at least, include about 200 journalists from 24 different countries, and the tool seems to be especially popular, at least for this use case, in countries with authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning leaders, as 38 of those journalists are in Morocco, 48 in Azerbaijan, 12 in the United Arab Emirates, and stepping further east, 38 targeted journalists are in India. Though again, that's just one slice of the list of confirmed people, pulled from a list of 50,000 or so people of interest, which includes, again, these are just the ones that have been confirmed so far, world leaders like Emmanuel Macron of France and Imran Khan of Pakistan, a total of three presidents, ten prime ministers, and at least one king have been confirmed so far. There are also diplomats from all over the world and government workers of all stripes and positions up and down the chain of command. The response to these revelations has been mixed, though almost always outwardly critical of potential misuse of such software. Companies like Amazon have removed NSO Group services from their cloud computing platforms. And social networking companies have likewise booted the pieces of NSO Group they've been able to find from their services. Some of them have also demanded the required implementation of end-to-end -end encryption across all communication-focused apps, which could help secure some of the weak spots exploited by Pegasus, while others, Apple most recently, but Facebook too, have filed lawsuits in Apple's case, for compensation from NSO Group, alongside the disgorgement of profits, the giving up of any profits they might have made from this product, and what amounts to the legal prevention of NSO Group doing what they've been doing ever again, because it infringes upon Apple's rights and property. NSO Group's response to these several years of revelations has been similar to their response to previous allegations about Pegasus. Essentially, we didn't do it. And it probably didn't even happen, but if it did, we're not responsible for how our customers use our product. Government leaders who have been accused of using Pegasus for nefarious purposes have also issued denials, some saying, yes, we use it to track bad guys, but not for anything like what you're accusing us of, while others have issued complete denials, saying they don't have anything to do with NSO Group, and thus nothing to do with these sorts of hacks. Again, it can't easily be proven who ordered the hacking of all these people. There's plenty of room for denial, even if all the evidence seems to point at specific perpetrators. So despite the afflicted parties in Poland, all being people who the current government leadership would have reason to target, 
if they thought they could do so in private and get away with it. There doesn't seem to be a way, currently at least, to know with 100% certainty that they did so. And if they did, whom within the government ordered it and pulled the software trigger to deploy it in each case against each individual. There is an effort in the European Union right now to sanction NSO Group, closely following a U.S. blacklisting of the group and recent high-level calls for a more complete U.S. sanction. Though it's unclear whether either effort will have legs, as doing so might upset relations with Israel by calling the legitimacy of their other local cybersecurity and surveillance outfits into question. In the meantime, though, this situation demonstrates how relatively easily such tools can be utilized for purposes beyond their original proclaimed intention, and also how terms like criminal and terrorist can be fluffy and vague enough to creep into other use cases, as it's likely that if some of these governments and leaders did give the okay for using Pegasus to spy on their political opposition or human rights activists operating in the area, they would justify those actions by claiming these people they targeted were engaging in behavior or held beliefs that were bad for the country, bad for their cultural or other ideological pillars, which in their mind was criminal, even terroristic, dangerous behavior that warranted these sorts of actions. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War by Ben Steele. I picked up this book because I love learning about niche topics that, based on my superficial understanding of them, seem to have had a great deal of influence across a variety of different fields and historical events, but which I don't know the specifics of. And this book didn't disappoint in that regard the Marshall Plan and the events leading up to it and the reverberations of it informed a great deal of the modern world and the shape it took and particularly what happened during the Cold War. But what happened during the Cold War is very much influencing us today as well. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Marshall Plan by Ben Steele. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects, written projects, podcast projects, other sorts of projects at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.